One of the most distinctive activities of the Christmas season is the giving and receiving of gifts. Undoubtedly, you have given and received countless gifts over your lifetime. Sometimes when you receive a gift, it is met with joy and jubilation because it's exactly what you wanted. And then there are other gifts. Every family has the clueless cousin, the cheapskate uncle, and when you open gifts from them, it's not met with the same level of enthusiasm and excitement. You open those gifts and you think to yourself, well, this is going to be boxed up in the basement, or I'm going to take it back to the department store for a store credit, or better still, you think to yourself, maybe I can re-gift this thing next year at the office Christmas party. One thing I've discovered is that the giver of a gift can measure our appreciation for the gift by our response to the gift. In the Gospel of Matthew, the author makes it abundantly clear that God has given us a Christmas gift in Jesus Christ. It is Matthew who tells us that his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And isn't it nice to be reminded in the midst of Uh, COVID-19 in the year 2020, that our God is not a socially distanced God. Isn't it nice to be reminded that our God is close and personal? He pulled out all the stops. He sent the very word from the beginning wrapped in flesh. He sent his one and only son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question of the hour is how do we respond to God's gift at Christmas. What is the appropriate response that we ought to have towards Jesus? The answer to that question is found in Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. I invite you to take your Bible and turn there. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 2, I'll begin at verse 1, I'll conclude at verse 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star in the east. We've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem in Judea they replied for this is what the prophet has written but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared he sent them to Bethlehem and said go and make a careful search for the child As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. They bowed down. They worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. 
And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. It is Matthew who tells us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, magi from the east came searching for the child. To be honest, we don't know much about these magi. This is the only place in the Bible where they're mentioned. Most biblical scholars believe that these guys were from Persia. They were probably political leaders, maybe religious leaders in their nation. Regardless, they dabbled in astronomy. Most people assume there were three of these magi. The reason we assume that is because of the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But nowhere in the text does it give us a number of these wise men. We commonly call them wise men, but sometimes I question that. I question their wisdom because some of their actions seems to me a bit foolish. For example, they gained an audience with the present king, and they asked him the whereabouts of his replacement. Now, in the first century, that's a surefire way to get executed. But that's exactly what the Magi did. They went to the capital city, Jerusalem. They gained an audience with King Herod. And they asked, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? In other words, we've come to look for your replacement. Now, the case could be made that you know more about Jesus than the Magi. In fact, you know a lot more about Jesus than these wise guys from Persia. But there's one thing that they got right. They knew they were in search for the one born king. Jesus is not appointed king. Jesus did not become king. Jesus was not elected king. Jesus is born king. Jesus is just as much king in the palace as the pasture. He's just as much king in the cradle as he is on the cross. He's just as much king, whether he's in heaven or on earth. One thing that the Magi got right is that Jesus is born king. He is king as he is lying there in a manger of straw. He's king as he's playing around as a toddler in a Bethlehem home. He's king as a young boy, as he astounds the teachers in the temple. He's king as he works in his father's carpentry shop. He's king as he begins his ministry at the age of 30 at the baptism at the Jordan River. He's king when he opens the eyes of the blind and unstops deaf ears. He's king when he feeds 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. He's king 
when he yells out to his deceased BFF Lazarus, Lazarus come out and the dead man came hopping out of the grave. He's king when he stumbles and staggers through the streets of Jerusalem with a cross beam strapped to his back up a skull shaped hill called Golgotha. He's king as the Roman soldiers stretch him wide, raise him high and lay him low. He's king as his dead body is placed into the grave. He's king for on the third day he was raised from the dead. He is king for he ascended into the heavens with a promise he will come back in like manner. This morning I came to tell you that the Magi were exactly right. This one is born king. For Jesus to be king is to declare that he's king over your problems. He's king over your burdens. He's king over your cancer. He's king over your COVID. He is king over your failures. He is king over your finances. He is king over your family. He is king over your future. He is king over this church. He is king over this community. He is king over this state. He is king over this nation. He is king over all the nations. I came this morning just to tell you that he is born king. This one through the Magi seek, he is the one who is born king of kings and Lord of lords. The Bible says of him he is the eternal king he is the everlasting king he is the name that's above every name that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that this one is born king this Jesus who the magi seek is the one who was born king but the question does remain why would they travel all these thousands of miles to look for this kingly Christ child? They're not believers in Jesus. They're not Jews. The nation of Israel poses no political threat to Persia. We're not given any indication that these guys are globetrotters who just go all over the world whenever a new king is born. Why did they make the trip? The answer could be found on their own lips. They did declare, we've seen a star in the east. Somehow they believed that whenever a new star appeared in the heavens, it symbolized the arrival of a significant person. But it was more than just a significant individual. No, by their own admission, they tell you why they've come. We have come to worship him. The driving force in the life of these magi was to get at the feet of Jesus. Everything they did, the decisions that they made, how they conducted themselves, how they navigated their journey, everything was in the hopes of worshiping this king. So friend, um, I don't know how far you had to travel to get here today. I'm not sure how many risks you had to take in order to get here today. But according to the Magi of Matthew chapter 2, it's worth it. It's worth it to worship the king. It's worth it. Whatever you have to do to worship him, it is, it is worth it. He is worthy of all of your affection. He is worthy of all of your worship. However far you had to travel, whatever you had to do to tune in, whatever risk you had to take, it is worth it because he is worthy. Why did the Magi travel so far? They simply said by their own admission, we have come to worship him. 
This disturbed Herod. The word disturbed can also be translated confused. And not only was King Herod confused, but all of Jerusalem with him. What is this? This ragtag bunch of wealthy, well-dressed individuals who have come from Persia to declare, where is the Christ? This disturbed, confused Herod. So he called together all of the best biblical experts he could find. The chief priests, the teachers of the law. He asked them a question. And by his question, he reveals that he understands what the Magi are truly seeking. They're not just seeking the replacement of Herod. They are seeking the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one. For Herod asked the experts of the biblical law, he asked the, the, the teachers of the law, where is the Christ to be born? The chief priests, the teachers got together. They studied the scriptures. They came back with this answer. The prophet Micah declares in chapter 5, verse 2, that out of Bethlehem, God will raise the shepherd of Israel. The Christ is to come from Bethlehem. King Herod called the Magi together secretly. He said to them, uh, the one you seek is to be born in Bethlehem. It's only five miles from here. I want you to go and make a diligent search for the child. When you find him, report back to me. Because I too want to go worship him. Friend, this story is really about worship. The word worship is found three times in our 12 verses. Verse 2, verse 8, verse 11. This is a story about... Um, a first century worship war. Every culture has its own worship wars. I realize that when you hear the word worship, when you hear the phrase worship war, you may think to yourself, well, that has to do with music. It has to do with song selection. It has to do with uh, instrumentation, whether it's a piano and an organ or whether it's a guitar and a drum set. We typically speak about worship in, in terms of traditional or contemporary or blended styles of worship. And while that is our understanding of worship, and while it's true that there is not one song that is sung, not one note that is struck in Matthew chapter 2, I will tell you that embedded in these 12 verses, you'll find at least three prominent styles of worship. There are a lot of great definitions of worship. I'll give you this one just to chew on, that worship is our response to the goodness and greatness of God in Christ. That's worship. Worship is how we respond to the goodness and the greatness of God in his activity of redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this story, there, there are at least three responses. The first one I'll just simply call the scholastic style of worship. This is the style of worship of the chief priest and the teachers of the law. This particular style of worship is one that could be described in this way. It's when there is biblical knowledge, but no life change. Biblical knowledge, but no life change. Stop and think about it. It is quite revealing 
that the chief priests were the students of the book, the teachers of the law. They were the ones who knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. They were the ones who stood up to say, thus saith the Lord. They were the ones who taught God's people God's word. They knew the Bible. When posed the question, where is the Christ to be born? They gathered together. They studied. They had a Bible study. They came to the conclusion it must be Bethlehem because the prophet Micah foretold in chapter 5, verse 2. They had biblical knowledge. In addition to that, they had individuals standing in front of them, these visitors from Persia who had come thousands of miles believing that that prophecy had been fulfilled. Yet the scripture text gives us no indication that any of the chief priest, any of the teachers of the law, traveled the five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem just to check it out for themselves. That not one of them, they had the biblical knowledge, but that biblical knowledge did not impact their daily decisions and choices. The biblical knowledge did not impact their seeking of the Christ. Their biblical knowledge did not well up inside of them a hunger and a desire to actively seek the Christ child. They had biblical knowledge, but no life change. And I wonder, some 2,000 years have passed, but not a whole lot has changed, for I suspect that there could be some scholastic worshipers in the American church today. People who have a head knowledge. They know the Bible. People who can quote more than a few verses. But that knowledge of the scripture does not really produce any life change. People still go on doing what they've always done. They do whatever they want to do, however they want to do it. They create their own agendas. They do their own thing without any really thinking about how does the Bible impact my living? How does the Christ child, how does the coming of the Messiah influence the decisions that I make on a daily basis? Oh, I wonder, are there any scholastic Bible worshipers even in this house today? People who have a biblical knowledge, but that biblical knowledge produces no life change. There's a second style of worship that's prominent and prevalent in this passage. And let's just call it the Herod style of worship. Herod had the right words, but his heart was calloused. He said to the Magi, you go search diligently for the child. And when you find him, report back to me, for I too want to worship him. The worship that Herod wanted to offer was purely selfish. He wanted to see if the Christ had come. And if the Christ had come, could that kingly kid help him with his agenda? Could uh, the arrival of the Christ help King Herod build up his own kingdom? It should be noted that Herod was a paranoid schizophrenic. He had been ruling and reigning for 30 years. For the first few years, he was a shrewd diplomat and a great builder. But as the decades went by, he worried that someone was going to come along and steal away the throne and his power. Why? Because Herod wasn't fully Jewish. He knew it. Others knew it. And all the while, he was looking over his shoulder, thinking that friends and family 
were establishing a coup to overtake him. He was so paranoid that Herod put to death many of his own family members and friends, thinking that somehow they were going to stab him in the back so before they could harm him, he would harm them. Can you imagine the paranoid frenzy that Herod spiraled downward into when the Magi posed the question to him? The truth of the matter is this, that if Herod was alive today, he would be institutionalized or he'd be a lifelong Washington politician, one of the two. But, but Herod, he, he was so selfish in his worship. He said, if, if the arrival of the Christ can help me, let me know about it because I too will worship him. But if the arrival of the Christ child will harm me, then I will harm him. After all, in the next passage, we'll discover next week that that's precisely what Herod tried to do in learning when the star appeared. He will issue the decree that all the baby boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity, two years of age and under, must be slaughtered because Herod feared that the arrival of the Christ just might harm his ability to build his own kingdom. I know some individuals, maybe you do too, it would appear that the reason they worship Jesus is what they can get out of Jesus. If Jesus can help me land a good job, I'm all in. If Jesus can help me get married, if Jesus can help me raise healthy kids, if Jesus can help me have a comfortable life, if Jesus can help me retire early, I'm all in. Let me know about it. Let me know his whereabouts, and I'll be the first one to bow down and worship him. But the moment Jesus calls on me to give him something I'm not willing to give, I would rather harm him if he can't help me. Do you know anybody like that? Have you ever been like that? Have you ever been a Herod worshiper? Someone who has the right words, but the heart is calloused. There's a third style of worship. You and I can just call it the Magi style of worship. It's the only one that we ought to emulate. The Magi heard from Herod. They followed the star. It rested over a house. They went in and they found the child's mother, Mary, and the Christ child. And they bowed down and they worshiped him. Friends, I don't want to mess up your nativity that you have spent so much time putting up in your house or in your front yard. But you do realize that these wise men did not go to the Bethlehem barn. They didn't go to the stable. Most of our nativity scenes show them coming to the stable. No, Matthew chapter 2 is quite clear that they came to the house. Keep in mind that at this time, Jesus was a toddler. He was one year old, 18 months, maybe two years of age. He was stumbling around the house, learning to walk. He was walking and falling, and he was just a, he was just a, a child, a toddler. And these wise men, they recognized him and they knew he's the one born king. The Magi style of worship is a style of worship that will worship Jesus at all cost. They pulled out all the stops. It wasn't enough just to be in the vicinity of Jesus. They had to be at the feet of Jesus. I guess the wise guys could have come to Jerusalem 
heard that he's not in the palace, thought to themselves, well, we gave our best effort. It was a good old college try. I guess we just need to go on back to Persia. No, no, these guys, they were adamant. So they traveled the additional five miles. They followed the star. It rested over the house. They went in and they worshiped him. It's not enough just to be in the vicinity of Jesus. It's not enough just to be in the zip code of Jesus. They had to be at the feet of Jesus. It's one thing to be in the right place. It's another thing to have the right posture. It would seem to me that this idea that that we are created uh, to be at the feet of Jesus, that we are driven to be worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth, who find the Christ child and fall down and worship him. It would seem to me that this idea of this style of worship is woven all throughout the gospel. It is Martha who's in the vicinity of Jesus. It's Mary who's at the feet of Jesus. It's Simon the Pharisee who is in the vicinity of Jesus. It's the woman with the bad reputation who finds herself at the feet of Jesus. It's Judas who lived in the vicinity of Jesus for some three years. It's Peter, James, and John who lived at the feet of Jesus. It's one thing to be in the vicinity of Jesus. It's another thing to be at the feet of Jesus. It's one thing to be in the right place. It's another thing to have the right posture. It would seem to me that the gospel call upon our life is one that drives us to the feet of Jesus. This whole idea of worshiping Jesus at all costs forms bookends around Matthew's gospel. We find these wise, wealthy well-dressed individuals from Persia in Matthew chapter 2, and they come and they fall down and worship Jesus. In Matthew chapter 28, it's the grown disciples who see the resurrected Lord, and they bow down and they worship him. For Matthew, this is the driving force of the gospel. That the gospel drives us to the feet of Jesus. That the gospel uh, wells up inside of us and, and longs for us to worship Jesus at all cost. Once again, this, this idea is woven all throughout the gospel story. So that we find men and women worshiping Jesus. We find rich and poor worshiping Jesus. We find Jew and Gentile worshiping Jesus. It is Luke in his description of the nativity scene that tells us that the poor Jewish shepherds, they come and when they see the Christ child, they worship him and then they become the first super spreader because they spread the news concerning this one born in the Bethlehem barn. We find these magi from the east. They are wealthy, they're rich, they're Gentiles, yet they come in search of the one who is born king. Once again, it is Luke who tells us in his version of the story that when Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple about a week after birth, it is Simeon, this great man of God, who says, now my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. No sooner did he said that than Anna the prophetess, this great godly gal who lived there in the temple and around the temple, when she saw baby Jesus, she said, now redemption has come. All throughout the gospel story, you find all types of people. And, and, and the one common denominator is that they are driven to worship Jesus at all costs. 
would almost seem that the author is trying to tell us that the purpose for all people is to find themselves at the feet of Jesus. That you were created to worship. You were created to worship Jesus all the days of your life with all that you have. And I'll make the statement that I believe that worshiping Jesus was the most important thing for these magi. That for these wise men, worshiping Jesus was the most important thing in their life. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? A text doesn't say it. Well, it doesn't say it, but it sure does show it. You know, sometimes you and I have actions that speak so loudly that we can't hear what we're saying. Because actions do speak louder than words. Look at the actions of these magi. I'll give you three examples just to prove that worshiping Jesus was the most important thing in their life. First and foremost, they were persistent. They traveled over 6,000 miles just to get to Israel. They traveled so far, so long, they got there. Why? Because they were in search of the one born king. They were persistent in their search. Secondly, they listened to the word of God. And by listening to it, they obeyed it. For when the chief priest and the teachers of the law said that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem, they said, great, where is Bethlehem? We can't find it on our GPS. And Herod said, it's only five miles away. You can't miss it. It is a little bitty old village, but you can't miss it. They listened to the word of God, the Magi, and they responded in obedience. That's how I know that worshiping Jesus was the most important thing in their life. I'll give you a third example. They worshiped with their wealth. Friends, you can only do two things with your wealth. You either worship your wealth or you worship with your wealth. And these magi worshiped with their wealth. They opened their treasures. They gave gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is the most precious commodity in the first century. Gold is the most precious commodity in our century, too. They gave frankincense. It's an incense that was burned in worship, for they had come prepared to worship the Christ child. They gave myrrh. Myrrh was a spice used for preparing a body for burial. These Persian religious political leaders understood that the death of this king would be significant. No truer statement could be made. The death of this Christ child will be significant. So they brought myrrh. It's John chapter 19 that tells us that after Jesus had died on the cross, it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who asked for permission to take down the body and prepare it for burial. And the fourth gospel tells us that it was Nicodemus who brought 75 pounds of a myrrh mixture to prepare properly the body of Christ. See, the death of Jesus is significant. And somehow, some way, these magi from the east understood it. So they brought gifts 
of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. For they said, when this king dies, it will be significant. And it is significant because there's no way that any lost person can be saved outside of exclusive faith in the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It was because of the death of Jesus that your sins were nailed to the tree. And because of the activity of Jesus, Jesus declared, it is finished. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus died in your stead. Jesus died in my place. For the death of Jesus is a significant action. Because of his death, we can live eternal. So the Magi got it right. They knew that the death of this one would be significant. They came to the house in Bethlehem and they worshiped. They worshiped at all cost. Why? Because the Christ is worth it. So they were prevalent in their worship. They listened to God's word and responded in obedience and they worshiped with their wealth. I told you at the very beginning that the giver of a gift can measure our appreciation for the gift by how we respond to the gift. God has certainly given us a gift at Christmas. The gift is the person, Jesus Christ. And how are we to respond to him with all-out worship? That we organize our days that we think biblically, that we respond obediently so that by our action, by our lifestyle, by the words we say, by the things that we think, by the activities of our lives, by everything that's on our calendar, it is obvious that worshiping Jesus is the most important thing in our life because the only appropriate response to God's gift at Christmas is to worship Jesus with all you got. So I'm reminded of the hymn writer. All to Jesus I surrender, and all to him I freely give. And I will ever love and trust him, and in his presence I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. This morning, friend, I wonder, is there anything that you need to surrender to Jesus this Christmas season? Is there anything that you need to give to him? Maybe you need to give him everything. Maybe you need to give him your heart. Maybe you need to give him your life. Maybe you're here today and you never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And today is the day for you to give him everything and surrender it all unto him. But maybe you're a believer. And maybe there's a problem that you need to surrender to him. Maybe you need to surrender your marriage to him. Maybe you need to surrender a relationship to him. Maybe you need to surrender a friendship to him. Maybe you need to surrender your finances to him. Maybe you need to surrender your future to him. Maybe you just need to surrender a, a, a worry that keeps you up at night unto him. What do you need to surrender to Jesus? Because the only appropriate response is for us to worship Jesus at all cost, to give him everything. Why? Because he's able to handle it. To give him everything, why? Because he's worthy of our worship and praise. The giver of a gift can always measure our appreciation for the gift by how we respond to the gift. So how do you respond to the gift of God at Christmas in Jesus Christ.
It would seem to me from Matthew chapter 2, the only appropriate response is a style of worship where you worship him at all cost. You're persistent in your worship. By your lifestyle, you reveal that you are listening to the word of God and obeying the word of God. And you worship him with your wealth. Everything at your disposal. This morning, this Christ child is calling you to surrender it all unto him. Whatever it is that the Spirit brings to your mind, that you're holding on to, clutching and grasping, whatever it is, this Christmas Sunday, I encourage you, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. And I will ever love and trust him. And in his presence, I'll daily live. So together we say, I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender it all. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. For some people today, they're physically here. They may be listening online. There are some people who need to surrender everything to Christ. And Father, I pray that that person will respond to you in faith. For others of us, we have something that we're holding on to, something that we fear, something that we worry about, and we just need to surrender it unto you. Father, as you lead us during this invitation time, help us to respond in obedience unto you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.